You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 16. The 45. At what age do we decide whether music is good or bad? When do our critical faculties or our cultural snobbery properly kick in? Around late September 2004, on the first week back at work after my honeymoon, I passed my co-worker Paul on the stairs. Hi Matt, your wedding present's on your desk, he said with a smirk, and off he went. When I opened the Do Not Bend envelope lying in front of my keyboard, I fully understood that smirk. It was a 45 RPM single from 1965, a copy of the first record I ever owned. In October of that year, at the age of six, I caught chicken pox. Leaving aside the itchy spots and the missed school friends, I was delighted when the doctor informed my mother that I must stay at home for the rest of the school term. In particular, it meant I wouldn't have to endure my class teacher, Miss Hudson, until at least the next calendar year. I'm sure we all have memories of a special teacher who inspired us and unlocked our potential. Miss Hudson was not that teacher. When anyone tells me how education has gone to pot because teachers cannot administer discipline, I'll happily reel off a list of sadists from my past who randomly took out their personal inadequacies and disappointments on children. And yes, I'm fully aware that I don't have all the answers and have never had to face 30 knife-wielding year nines on a Monday morning. But legally allowing teachers to administer violence to minors is a licence for abuse, pure and simple. Miss Hudson clearly enjoyed casually slapping six-year-old children around, but it was the psychological violence that has stayed with me. As was common with five- and six-year-olds then and now, there were instances of pupils wetting themselves in class. Her response was to write on the blackboard, in large letters, a message. For example, Tommy Abrahams wet himself, where it remained for the rest of the day. Years later, my mother mentioned this, and I asked her why neither she nor Dad ever complained to the school. You were always good at holding it in, she said, so we didn't bother. Fair enough. At the time, Mum worked freelance as a pattern book designer for the rag trade, or the schmutter trade, as she always called it. Every day, she sat at our dining table, churning out endless sketches of new garment designs cobbled together here and there from back issues of Vogue, helped along by the BBC Home Service and a box of 20 Embassy tipped. Disturbing her during my confinement for anything less than a severed artery was forbidden, so I occupied myself with library books, my brother's junior world encyclopedia set, and the Paddington Bear box set given to me on my sixth birthday. It had to be reading, because, watch with mother aside, daytime telly didn't really yet exist unless you spoke Welsh, or enjoyed a schools programme fronted by Redvers Kyle. The only other daytime presence was our twice-weekly cleaner, Mrs Gibson, a kind lady who took pity on my condition and made me hot chocolate between bouts of dusting. One day, Mum told me that Mrs Gibson was soon to give me a special present for being a brave boy. 
it was to be my very own gramophone record of songs from the film Mary Poppins. I had by now seen this masterpiece twice, once in the West End and then when it played the Stamford Hill Odeon, and was understandably excited, shouting, Have you got the record? Have you? Have you? Every time she visited. In early December, she brought the disc round, and that afternoon, Mum and I settled down to listen. Within seconds, I knew I had been sold a pup. There was no Julie Andrews, and no Dick Van Dyke. These were asinine cover versions of Chim Chim Cheree and Let's Go Fly a Kite by Billy Cotton and his band, on a promotional freebie given away in exchange for two wrappers of Summer County Margarine. The success and longevity of Billy Cotton's career until his death in 1969 still remains a mystery to me. I know he originally conducted the Dambusters March for the film and was undoubtedly up to the job, but being a funny-looking orchestral conductor does not a TV and radio personality make. If it did, then surely we would still speak glowingly of the primetime Sir Adrian Bolt variety hour. Don't let nostalgia geeks tell you otherwise. Billy Cotton was bloody awful. We think of Dick Van Dyke's Bert mainly for his strange attempt at a Cockney accent, which is perhaps unfair, Listen to him sing Chim Chim Cheree. There's a grace and empathy in his rendition, and an understated star quality that draws you in and makes you stop what you're doing. Billy Cotton's lead singer, Alan Breeze, was perfectly serviceable tackling the same song. The guy could sing, no question. He was, after all, a former principal at Doily Cart. But like the rest of Billy Cotton's troupe, he was a hack a session man of the dance hall era, cranking out performances by the yard. At the age of six, I wouldn't have understood any of this. What I did know was that this incarnation of Mary Poppins on the Summer County label was terrible, and I tearfully made Mum and Dad promise me to buy the proper version as an extra Christmas present. Just under four decades later, in 2004, I relaxed from the pressures of combining work with preparing for my forthcoming wedding to enjoy a boozy lunch with Paul, the colleague mentioned earlier. A difference of opinion over some or other band led to a discussion about how and when we discovered there was such a thing as good and bad music. For him, it was his parents listening to Sing Something Simple, a BBC Radio 2 monstrosity in which the Cliff Adams singers took popular songs, bit into their jugular and sucked the last drop of life from them. It became something of a benchmark for Paul, proving you cannot empirically tell what's good until you know for certain what's bad. I told him the same applied to the Mary Poppins record generously given to me by Mrs Gibson. So to her, Alan Breeze, the marketing department of Summer County, and not least El Maestro Billy Cotton, I owe a debt of thanks for setting me on the path to music which excites, challenges, stirs the emotions, or simply makes the time pass more agreeably. That my friend Paul went on to eBay and sought out a copy of the single means our conversation must have struck a chord. I took the 45 home that evening and showed it to Anita. We've got a late wedding present from Paul at work, I announced. 
before relating the whole story of Chickenpox, Miss Hudson, Mrs Gibson, Billy Cotton and Summer County. Who's Billy Cotton? she asked. The single remains treasured, if unplayed, to this day. That was The 45, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this, then why not hit like and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time.